Welcome to the Rebel Souls podcast, where we flip the middle finger to the status quo. I'm your host, Shelley Paxton, lifelong rebel, liberator of souls, and author of Soulbatical, a corporate rebel's guide to finding your best life. Settle in as we dive deep with badass leaders who are rebelling for what matters most in life, business, and the world at large. I'm so happy you're here. Let's get this revolution started. This is a Soulfire production. Hello and welcome back, my fellow rebel souls. It feels so good to be back with all of you. Thanks for bearing with us in April and May when we just took a little hiatus. So we only gave you a couple episodes a month, but we're back in full force, as you know. And this is my first guest interview. And I could not think of a better way to kick it off. It's actually with my friend, Angela Tennyson, who's somebody I've been trying to get on the podcast for a very long time. And she and I were talking at the end of the conversation and just realized like, it's divine timing. These things happen exactly when they're meant to happen. And it was so clear to me that she needed to get to the place she is today. And I needed to be in the place I am today for us to have the magical conversation that you're about to listen to. This one is like, I don't even know how to sum up all of the juiciness. There is a lot of emotion and vulnerability and courage in what you're about to hear. Angela talks a lot about legacy and leadership and liberation and the intersection of all of those and her own personal journey through those from her own childhood being the only African-American woman in so many different situations through fighting to get Barack Obama, then Senator Obama, elected into the White House, to then pursuing a dream and taking a massive leap of faith to get to go work for him in the White House. And now on her own incredible mission to move the needle on racism. And we dig so deep into all of that. You get to learn her story of manifesting her vision and how she did it, taking those tiny steps and really leaps of faith along the way and what it means to live your legacy. And also leadership lessons from President Barack Obama, literally working in the White House with him as the first female, the first African-American White House usher working directly with President Obama and Michelle Obama. Incredible. Her stories and the lessons she's learned and how she's now carrying the baton forward in her own way. And she talks about her 43-year mission to end racism and how she's rebelling for courageous conversations that are going to help us get there. And I mean, she's just, she is one of my favorite humans. 
a soul sister, somebody I learn from and am inspired by every day. And I dare you to not get some juicy soul nugget out of this and really think about your own legacy, your own leadership and how you're showing up authentically in your leadership. This is one of the things she challenges us to do. And your own liberation, soul liberation in the way that I talk about it. But she's also talking about liberation from our limiting beliefs, which is aligned with my beliefs of soul liberation and also liberation from oppression, helping with those conversations that will forever eradicate this part of our history. So let's dive in, please, like really be present which ironically or not so ironically is one of the things we talk about in this conversation, like the power of being present and what that has to do with having these courageous conversations and with ending racism. So on that note, let's dive into my beautiful, soulful conversation with the one and only Angela Tennyson. I am so happy to have you with me. My soul sister, Angela Tennyson, is finally in the house on Rebel Souls. Welcome. I'm here. I made it. I made it. (laughs) Finally. Oh, you made it. Uh, No, like we were just talking about like off camera before we started recording divine timing. It truly is divine timing. I think there's so much meaty stuff for us. And I'm really excited to introduce you to my community, to the Rebel Souls community. So I'm glad we're having this conversation. I want to dig into all the stuff that you've been up to since the last time you and I spoke. So this is a catch up. This is like an Angela Shelley soul sister convo (laughs) that everybody else gets to listen into. I'm excited to be here. I got a chill just when you said divine timing, because I definitely believe in that for sure. Yay. All right. Let's start with my favorite question. And then we just get to like, see where the conversation organically takes us. But you know, I love to start by saying what or asking, I should say, what are you rebelling for my dear Angela? I'm rebelling for more honest conversations, courageous conversations about race. It's about damn time that we all step up to those. Yeah, but they're not easy, but they're very necessary. I'm so hoping, like I've spent a lot of time with you. I would say not nearly enough, but I've definitely spent more time than the um, our soul friends, soul family listening in. And everything I know about you is how elegant you are, how passionate you are, how, you know, you aren't afraid to step in and say what you believe and you speak from your soul. And that's what I've always known of you. So thank you for helping lead us in this space. Cause you're right. It's really hard. And I would love for all of us to learn from you. So let's start to unpack, like, what does that even look like? Yeah. The one thing I want to say is that you you said that um, the way I do it, I am afraid sometimes, but you know, the thing about courage is being afraid and doing the thing anyway. Right. And 
if we can acknowledge that, yeah, it's hard, it's scary to have these conversations and we need to do them anyway. Yes. Can I get a big amen for that? <laughs> it, that's, it's so true. I talk about the same thing, right? It's like, we've got to say like, whew, just gives me chills to think about, but it's like, yeah, we acknowledge it. We look fear in the eye and the only way to the other side is through. Yes. Right. And that's exactly, I, I want to, okay. I feel like before we really dive deep into this, I want to give everyone a sense of your background because I know so much about you and this incredible path you've been on. I was like, what is the word I want to use? Like incredible journey path. Like it just, it gives me goosebumps when you, like you said to me, and I've known this about you, like you are all about legacy, leadership and liberation. And I want to unpack those things in this conversation. But in order to really truly understand that, can you give us a sense for the journey you've been on that led you here to want to be leading these conversations? Yes, it's definitely been a long journey and I didn't wake up like this for sure. When I think of legacy, I've always been aware and just had this knowing that I stood on the shoulders of those that came before me and they didn't have an easy road. And the work that was done to pave the way for me. And so whether I was the first African-American, first and only African-American child in the gifted and talented program in my county, or helping the first African-American man become president of the United States. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Pause, cheer, applause, (laughs) woots. We're going to get into that story too. Obama, my heart beats. Love that guy. But I, I was very clear that, that there was more than me from an early age. And I needed to represent myself, my family, and my community well in the spaces that I, I found myself in. People love the, the Obama story, but I started off volunteering. And I'd learned to volunteer in high school. And it just became a part of what I did. You know, I saw my mom do it. I was in a program that required us to do it. And I realized early on that volunteering, um, you got more out of it oftentimes than the people that you were serving. You know, service is the best seat in the house. I was just going to say that from Rich Litvin, our favorite coach. (laughs) Yes. And what I kind of added to that is when you're serving others, you're really serving yourself. And I I was able to learn that, you know, I look back now and I know I learned that back then. And so I started volunteering on this campaign because he had won Iowa. I was on the sofa crying. Then he lost New Hampshire and I was on the sofa crying. And then (laughs) he said he's taken this message across the country and started naming these primary states. And South Carolina was the next one. And I'm originally from South Carolina. I was living in North Carolina at the time. And I jumped off the sofa like, okay, well, I am going to go help. And that turned into a phone call where I was offered 
a paid staff position on the campaign. But I was already working full time at the time in financial services. And I had a moment where I had to answer the question, was I going to quit this full time job to do this unknown thing? Like I had a political conscience, but I didn't know how politics really worked and campaigns and all of that. And everyone said no. That was a stupid thing to do because we take for granted now that a black man has been president for eight years in America. Before that, that had never happened. Was not a thing. And I really believed that it was possible. And I had what I call my legacy crossroads. And I had to ask myself if he didn't win and I hadn't done all I could to help him, how was I going to reconcile that? That gives me goosebumps. That's big. And so even more than him losing, it was, was I going to take the baton from those that had ran the race before me and run my leg of the race with some faith, blood, sweat, and tears to climb the next rung of the ladder? And so I did. I did the crazy thing and quit my job to go give it all. And, you know, there's a few other pieces in there, but I ended up working at the White House, although I didn't think I was going to ride it all. I was not one of the people that was riding it all the way to the White House. Famous last words. (laughs) I know. My goal was to get them there. I went back to Charlotte and 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 thought, it's like, whoa, I just blew up my life. What am I going to do now? Had a little extra time on my hands and put together that vision board I always planned to do, but never had time to. I thought about, you know, one of the big reasons that I really wanted Barack Obama to be president was because my niece was born earlier that year. And I remember thinking, what would she and a whole generation of children, like what limitations might be lifted if the only person they knew as president was Barack Obama? Like that, when you hear president, you think Barack Obama. And just that imagery and that feeling what would be possible with that? What limitations might she not put on herself? What limitations might others not put on her and a whole generation, right? And, but we talked about service, you know, serving others, you serve yourself. And as I'm doing this vision board, I realized limitations I had on myself had been lifted and it became like, oh, well, why wouldn't I go help this man that I helped get elected go work in his administration. And so I put the, the White House, a picture of the White House dead center on my, my vision board and the universe rose up to meet me. And I got a great lesson in leadership for sure. <laughs> oh, can we, okay. So first of all, the vision board, like, you know, I, I think sometimes it's like, oh yeah, so-and-so did a vision board. And like, it's just sort of like poo-pooed as this woo-woo thing. Like, What a vision board represents is putting your intentions into the universe. It can manifest in any way you want it to, but that was powerful. What you did was to say, I see myself there. I see myself as part of this change in this legacy going forward. Absolutely. Now, you don't just put the the picture on the board and do no work like that. that, That's not a thing. Like there's yeah, can you talk about a little bit of like what you did? So you put the picture dead center, White House, dead center of your in your vision board. And then what did you do? So I I thought 
the White House's representation. So it's White House, um, Barack and Michelle Obama, and then a lot of education stuff. So I was like, oh, I'll go work for the Department of Education. And, you know, you be careful what you put on your vision board. But I put my house on the market. I was still in Charlotte. I moved, took a leap of faith, what I call, if you're going to move to the D.C. area with a job that's only paying $33,000, <laughs> you got a whole lot of faith, okay? Um, and it, I was an academic advisor because nobody was hiring me in Charlotte. That's what helped push me to think bigger because I'd done this amazing thing and could not get a call back in Charlotte and started floating my resume north and, oh, I would get callbacks. So I was like, well, maybe I need to follow that energy, right? So I got there making a little bit of money and I'm like, okay, friends, I'm here. Now what? And I tricked myself to move in August because I'm just a sun child, summer baby. Do not understand the North. I know people think DC is not North, but <laughs> I'm trying to move South. I do not do winter well at all. And so I moved in August, but then it started to get cold and the money started to run out and I was putting gas and groceries on credit cards, um, closing bank accounts, you know, thinking, having that, do I leave a dollar in here <laughs> or do I put $5 in an ATM to get $20 out? That kind of thing. Um, things got really tight and I started thinking, oh, maybe I heard that little leap of faith thing wrong. Maybe, maybe, maybe it wasn't quite time yet. How does faith pay the bills? Cause that's what a lot of people <laughs> ask, right? So I love, keep going with this. So I really started to kind of unwind the dream. I was like, well, maybe this isn't time. Maybe I need to go regroup. He, he, he has a few more years. Maybe I can try again later. And I remember being at work one day. I mean, it had gotten cold. Like this is snowmageddon. Like, it was the coldest winter, like on record since the 1920s. It was oh the year God. I decided to move it north. Was. <laughs> of course it was. Thank you, universe. Of course. Testing and you on all fronts, literally. All of it. My mom's yeah. going like, are you still, are you warm enough? And I'm like, no, I'm freezing. I mean, really the snow was, well, you know about snow in Chicago, mm -hmm. but we're not used to that in the snow. It's tall as me. And then it keeps coming. Um, but I'm at work one day and I hear like my phone had been ringing and I was not answering it because I just assumed it was bill collectors. It's unknown or a private, those kinds of numbers back then. And the phone was ringing and I heard pick up the phone fool. Oh, I just felt that <laughs> through my whole body. <laughs> I literally, I looked at the phone, it was ringing and I heard, pick up the phone pool. And I grabbed it and I said, hello, hello. And the person said, hi, Angela. I was like, this is she. She's like, this is Paulette from the White House. I've been thinking about you. And I said, I'm so glad I've been on your mind. <laughs> oh God. And she said, I, I've been trying to get in touch with you. Now I had lost the phone. Well, the phone was stolen. I had to get an old phone and, you know, deal with that. And, but I'd been ignoring the call from the white house. So pick up the phone. So <laughs> pick, pick up, up the, the phone. phone, listen to that little voice. Those are soul nudges. Everyone listening. This is a huge takeaway. Listen to the voice. That pick voice we keep phone. trying to push away, pick up the damn phone. 
I, love I was that. scared it was a bill collector. And I'm like, don't call me, I'll call you. <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't say the White House on the caller ID. And the White House doesn't leave a message. I'm just like, oh, well, we'll try her again today. And luckily she didn't give up on me. Yeah. And I killed all my interviews. Thank God. <laughs> and February 1st, first day of Black History Month, 2010. I made a little bit of Black history of my own, working in Barack Obama's White House. Yeah, and the job was at the White House. I thought I was going to education or interior, some other department, but nope, right there. You're going right to the center of your vision board. Uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, so I, I love this on so many levels. I can never hear your story enough. And for everybody listening, like, okay, Pick up the damn phone, fool, number one, right? Listen to those soul nudges. And also what's really striking me is, as you said, like putting it on a vision board or saying it aloud is only the beginning. It isn't enough. And what you're describing is like, is is the manifestation of a, a phrase I use all the time. I say every badass accomplishment is a series of tiny steps. Oh, and you are talking about the tiny steps, right? So thank you for modeling that and telling us like how that, because <laughs> it's hard, right? Because when you're in the middle of it, it's like, does it even matter taking that next little step? Who cares? Is anybody listening? Is the White House really going to call? <laughs> yeah, the White House is going to call. And the question is like, what's your White House for everyone listening, right? So that at the time, was your White House, right? The White House was your, but like we all have a version of that. So I just want everybody who's sinking into this conversation, like learning from the pro, just think about like, what's your White House? And where, because faith was a big part of your journey, right? You literally risked everything. You left your job, you scraped nickels together, you froze in DC. Right. Yeah, there, there is some sacrifice and you don't know what it is. But in those tiny steps, there, there are decisions that are made in the moment. Are you going to take the next step towards the thing that you're, that you want, that you desire, that you at one point believed was possible? And so I think that's another thing that the vision board reminds you of that mindset you were in when you thought that that thing was possible. Yeah. And what is it in service of? Because I love that you brought up your niece because I've heard you talk about your niece. I have cried in conversations where you've told that story and how she is the reason you're living your legacy. She is the reason I mean, it seems to me that she was a big part of what gave you faith to move forward because you wanted her and her generation, not to mention your generation, our generation, to understand that possibility, to see an African-American in the White House and go, we can do anything. Oh, and so I just think for all of us, like, that's service. And for all of us to have the vision of like, who and what are we serving? Yeah, I can tell it now. Um, 
have the strength to to that back the tears, but it it's very real to put yourself out in service in that way. And it has most certainly served me in so many ways. So it's a twofer. So I've had the benefit of learning from you on so many levels and hearing some the benefits of, you know, lessons of leadership you learned from Obama in the White House. And I'd be really honored if you would share, you know, some of that with us because legacy, I mean, the bridge to leadership, right? Talk to us about, he was all about legacy and leadership. What did you take away from that seven years in the White House? So many, but in this moment, what comes up is authentic leadership. Like he is that guy that you think you see, right? He has a cool head and it has served him so well. He's brilliant. Like he, he reads <laughs> every piece of paper that's put in front of him. Like I would be responsible for getting him his briefing books. And we would talk about like, gosh, it was so big <laughs> for that one day. And he read it all. Like there were notes. So I think there's something with being yourself, bringing your full self and allowing who you are to serve you, like that be part of what makes you the kind of leader you are. And then there's um, the preparedness. He was always the most prepared person in the room. And if you tried to brief him on what was in the briefing book, he's got it because he already read it. (laughs) So... I would say those two big things, like as I own being more of who I am and trusting that my unique way of being is an asset, I was able to witness his unique way of being as an asset. And I I just never think I'm prepared enough, (laughs) but I'm working on that, working on that. Progress over perfection, my friend, right? We have to learn it again every single day. I want to introduce one other one that always stuck with me after I heard you say it the first time. You spoke about how you learned from him empathy over ego. And it landed so deeply with me that I, uh, to this day, I heard you say this over a year ago and I've never forgotten it. What does that mean? Like, what did that look like? And How do you bring that into your life, your leadership? Oh, Shelly, I need to go listen to that again. Um, I mean, he just had the biggest heart. Mm. And he was clear that it was bigger than about him. All right. To be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and understand to the best that you can their point of view and where they're coming from. He's one of the best at it. And we need so much more of that now. Because when I think of ego, I think of me, me, me. Yeah. What's in it for me? And when I'm doing these courageous conversations, there has to be space for people to, to the best that they can, understand others' points of view, others' experiences, and 
a different truth than they might have believed to be true. That's beautiful. Well, let's, I, I love that this idea of empathy over ego and some of the lessons from Obama's leadership led us into the courageous conversations. What are some of the other, you know, calling them principles sounds really yucky for some reason to me. It sounds generic. What, what are, what are, what are some of the other ways that we can engage in these conversations? Like what you just said struck me so deeply, like understand that my lived experience is different than your lived experience. Yes, we share being women. That's it. Our lived experiences are very different. And yes, we're coaches and all of that. But I think it's, it's really easy for us to see, especially those of us who are, you know, quite privileged and white, to see um, everything through the lens of our own lived experience. And empathy requires a very different view. How else, like what other guidance would you give us in having those conversations? Well, the first I would say, do the work. And what work looks like is research. Like Google is there. There are tons of African-American authors that have talked about these experiences and what life is like. And so it starts there. Um, It's not asking your one Black friend to give you the cliff notes. It's you can engage in conversation with them. Maybe, oh, I read Isabel Wilkerson's cast and I learned these things that I didn't know. Like that's, that's how you can enter a conversation. But yeah, I think it, it starts with getting curious and doing the work. And that's research and reading and paying attention just a bit more about even in your day-to-day life, like are there people of color as you go to the grocery store or to the dry cleaners or, yeah, I think we have to be way more present than, than what we have allowing ourselves to be. So those two things. I remember you talking about that as you were talking about lessons from Obama as well, you said something, if I'm remembering correctly, about being present, fully present in every room and every situation, which is really hard to do because often we just, you know, we're, we're worried about the future. We're thinking about the next thing we're, you know, or we're worrying about the past and like, we have so much power in the present and we can have so much more empathy and understanding in the present, which is what you're inviting us to do. Am I getting that right? Oh yeah. He was the master compartmentalizer, I'd say. Hmm. He had about 30 seconds to walk from work, turning from, turn from the most powerful man in the world into dad, husband. Oh, that's so beautiful. And, you know, he would be personable along the way, right? He could chat with the chief of staff up into the elevator and then let me 
<laughs> do my shenanigans on the way up. And then doors close. He's dead. Husband. But even in dealing with different, uh, we'll say constituents, but different people, um, if they came to an event, you know, there could be a celebrity in one room and say the, the red room and then go into the blue room. And then there's a gold star family who, you know, I know a gold star family. It's, it's someone who has a, lost a family member in the line of duty. And so he can go from making jokes with someone to being pretty solemn and commander in chief and consoler in chief in that room. And then, you know, there's a science fair winner in the green room that he then, you know, now is getting curious about our project and, you know, encouraging them to continue with their curiosity and what might be possible for them. And that's in the matter of 10 minutes. That's like the entire span of human emotion <laughs> in 10 minutes, what you just described. It's a roller coaster ride, and he was a master at it, a master at it, because you could go talk to each one of those families afterwards or each one of those people and they felt like they were the only person in the room you know they he made the eye contact he you know high-fived them or gave a hug if needed they they felt seen and isn't that what we all want is to feel seen amen That's one of my favorite Maya Angelou quotes that, you know, people will never remember exactly what you said to them, the words they use. They will always remember how you made them feel. That's my, that's my auntie, Maya Angelou. Oh oh my God. Can I, I I share her? Can we share her, please? I love her so much. Oh yeah, exactly. Okay. We'll do negotiations (laughs) offline. (laughs) I love that. I don't know. Okay. But honestly, like, you, oh, you just described that so beautifully. People will never forget how you make them feel. And I love what you said. He made everyone feel like they were the only person in the room. And when he went from room to room, he was able to be fully present in that moment, in whatever it required. What a powerful lesson for us all of us in every aspect of our lives, especially in having these difficult conversations. It's about being there like you and I are right now. I mean, I wish we were actually in person soon. I know. It's about being with each other, whether it's, you know, two people like we are today, whether it's a small group, whether it's a larger group, like how often are we really, truly present with each other? I love that you're bringing us into this space. It's the only way we can truly make change. We can be changed by being present. It's so true. So how does that relate to the concept of liberation, which is something you and I share, and there are so many beautiful layers to liberation. You know, I always talk in terms of soul liberation, I want to hear how you talk about liberation and let's talk about what you've done since the White House and more importantly, like 
what you're working on right now, because you, my friend, are living your legacy. So I want to make sure we spend some time on that. And it seems to me that it ties to liberation. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, um, I think like freedom is definitely one of my my I think one of the things we talked about when we first ever talked on the phone is freedom being a core value. And that is expanded from my own freedom to to live as I choose to select any dream and go after it um, and to I've embarked on what I call this 43 year mission to move the needle on racism. Tell us more about that, please. <laughs> this is me. This is now Shelly catching up with Angela. We've gotten to that part of the story, just to be clear. <laughs> and so it really is a liberation of, of, and I would say my people, but a liberation of America from uh, sweeping under the rug this awful history that we've had. And so it's pulling the curtain back, it's telling the truth and creating space for truth to be held. So, you know, we're coming up on a year of um, the murder of George Floyd. And um, Up until that point, I had, you know, I was on this coaching thing. You know, I started writing a book and there just seemed to be more. I didn't know what more was just yet, but there, there just seemed to be more. And once the protests started and kept getting bigger and bigger, and I joined a few. <laughs> um, I have to say, I never watched the full video of life leaving his body because I just I couldn't I couldn't allow myself to do that. And I'd seen so many before. And nothing had happened. No one was held accountable, whether it was Philando Castile, uh, Freddie Gray, Eric Gardner, Walter Scott, the list goes on, right? So I was like, I can't watch this one. Um, But it seemed America watched this time. America was present to what was going on. And I felt like I was watching America watch the video and the world was watching America watch the video. And it felt like this time could possibly be different. Um, I got to Sunday night and I couldn't sleep. And that's because, you know, in my still work a a job. So (laughs) J-O-B still 
golden handcuffs. Every Monday, we had a question of what was your highlight of the weekend. And I was, I felt like I didn't know what I wanted to say. I'm like, what do I say? Do I even go? And about 8, 10, Monday morning, I started texting with friends and family in a chat. And I'm, I'm like, what? What do I do? Do I go? Do I not go? I'm a senior member of this organization as a black person. You know, do I let myself off the hook? Do I let the white people in on the call off the hook? Do I tell the truth? Do I lie? Do I make up something else? Um, and this goes on until 8:59, and I finally text my boss, and I'm say, and I said, "Hey, I'm not going to have a good answer to <laughs> what's your highlight for the weekend because I decided I'm like I'm going to." it's gonna it's happening and he called me immediately and said oh we're not asking that today in fact we are finishing up a statement we're going to read and we are we already starting we're ready to make donations because we stand behind black lives matter and um we're going to put our money where our mouth is and you know don't even worry about that What? a sigh of relief, right? I didn't have to do anything the way my organization worked. And I felt so lucky in the moment. And I felt saddened for my friends who are still waiting for their organizations to say something. And Since that time, I decided that I wanted to help create those spaces where these hard things can be said and these hard, courageous conversations can happen. Tell us more about some of those, because I know in the early days of this, you and I were still spending quite a bit of time together in our coaching community, and I was watching you really like step into your power and you really, really, um, not, not only your power, step into your mission. Like, I feel like I just watched you go, this is what I've been waiting for. I'm not talking about waiting for the George Floyd thing, but waiting for the moment where you're like, I understand why I'm here. Yeah. And that's what it, and that's what it, yeah, that's what it feels like that that was you going. Yeah. And you've, you've now had a lot of conversation in rooms with like a lot of old white dudes (laughs) on how to, right? Like I won't name the names of some of the groups I know you've spoken to, (laughs) but let's talk about that. How did that go? What does that sound like as you're creating these spaces and as you're looking at people who look nothing like you, who've had very different lived experience? How, what is that like? What are you Uh, saying? (laughs) So, um, what I've realized and, and to your point, yes, I feel like I have definitely I've, Rich talks about those, those portals. I've definitely gone through a portal or two in the last um, year or two. Um, But part of it's been following the energy and being, I would say, further away from my pressure cooker 
job <laughs> that I loved. Um, but being able to explore more of who I am and why I'm here and being able to trust my intuition and follow the energy, um, it's brought me to that point. And, you know, once again, I got to a point where I couldn't not say anything. And I got put more in these places where I couldn't not say anything. Um, and then I realized the access of being in certain spaces provided an opportunity to say some things. Just a little bit on, uh, as, as it started to come together. So, so in August, Black Panther died, right? Oh, R.I.P. So Chadwick Bozeman was a humble guy, but he was clear about who he was and on a mission. And he died at 43, but had done like, had so much impact, right? And so like, I, I was in bed, like, like, I don't know Chadwick Boseman, but I've watched Black Panther no less than 20 times, right? And about 11 of those were in the movie. <laughs> um, again, representation matters, right? You know, we, Black people finally had a, a superhero and he was mm. fucking amazing. <laughs> he was fucking amazing. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, but I was like a part of my soul, like was just, just left that weekend that he died. And I realized that he died. was a big thing uh, on the anniversary of, um, the March on Washington. And I'd been holding the James Baldwin book um, for our next time for so long. And so I just, I got, I was in the bed and I read that that weekend. And James Baldwin wrote that book a <laughs> hundred years after the Emancipation Proclamation became law the same year of the march in Washington. And so I thought about what Chadwick was able to do in his 43 years. And so I thought, huh, how old would I be if I could take that same intention, knowing what I know now, and try to move the needle for my next 43 years? It's like, I'd, I'd still be alive, hopefully in my right mind. And by Sunday, I worked out the math and it was like, oh, that would be 2063. Mm. Exactly 200 years from the Emancipation Proclamation and the 100 years from the March on Washington. And so in that moment, I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is this is your work. This is your work. And so what I say in these rooms and, and it's a little different but like we all have work to do to move the needle on racism and you know at first I was angry I was mad I'm like I did not create this I'm here in spite of this and what I re realized is that we all like the work that we all have to do is different but there's work for all of us to do so for me, 
speaking my truth, sharing my experiences, and holding space. That's my work. And that's what I do when I go in these rooms. And that's the foundation of of what you've created, the Global Legacy Institute. Is that really your, has this become your driving mission, your driving force? This is the work for me to do for the time that I'm here, the time that's left, is to move the needle on racism in America. And that's economics, that's political power, and that's criminal justice. And I'm still figuring out what those metrics are specifically, but Black people are 13% of the population and still only hold about 2.5% of the wealth. We got a lot of work to do. I mean, there's so many problems that stem from that alone. So it's my work. I love, it's a beautiful way to come full circle back to legacy that you called, you founded your, your company, your organization as the Global Legacy Institute that at least in my eyes and in my words, you know, I wrote in my book about living your legacy, which to me is more meaningful than leaving your legacy. And as I listen to you say that, I'm like, oh my God, if I could have a poster woman, in fact, I'm just going to decide now that I do have a poster woman and her name is Angela Tennyson. You're it. Like you're living your legacy and everything is aligning beautifully around, like, I understand why I'm here. And it's what you are serving every single day. And thank you for that. Thank you for modeling it, letting us learn from you and your experience and helping us through it, helping us to find our courage, all of us to find our courage to have these conversations and to help move the needle on racism. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh my God. (laughs) So, you know, like, uh, I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. I want to, before we tell everyone where they can find you, I want to end on another quote that you shared with me. So we've shared our love for Maya Angelou. We shared our love for Barack Obama. And I want to share our mutual love for Barack's amazing wife, Michelle Obama, who I know we both also love. And I remember you sharing this quote with me. And it's the first thing I thought of when I was, you know, thinking about this conversation that I've been jumping out of my skin to have, right? And you said, you quoted Michelle and said, the presidency doesn't change who you are. It reveals who you are. And I remember the Angela addition to that addition to that which was interject anything into, you know, that beginning of that statement. You looked at all of us and said, okay, maybe it's not the presidency for me or for you or for anybody else. Maybe it is like, I love the, I want your niece to be president, right? Like how fucking amazing is that? And at the same time, like, it's so true. Like it doesn't change who we are. It reveals who we are, that challenging thing. 
And I feel like your journey hasn't changed who you are. It's revealed who you are and it's led to this beautiful place of this intersection of legacy and leadership and liberation. And I just can't think of a better model to learn from. It's incredible. Where can people like find you and learn more about the work you're doing so that we can be a part of moving the needle on. And I'm going to add, I'm going to, you know, my, my friend, Justin Michael Williams, who I want to introduce you to, he's on a mission to end racism in a generation. And I want to connect the two of you. He's a magic human. Who's also been on the podcast. So where can everyone find you, learn from you, connect with you? AngelaTennyson.com. That's that's me. T N N I S O N. I'm there. That's it. Perfect. I love it. Thank you for spending this time. I selfishly am like, <laughs> yay! I got my Angela time. Oh, it feels so nourishing. Yeah, thank you, and thank you for the work that you're doing. And you know, I mean, this is this is so perfect for this podcast because it's like it's called Rebel Souls for a reason, right? And I say it's like I want to bring more and more people like you who are, you know, out there changing the game and creating culture and just like flipping the middle finger to the status quo. And that's exactly what you're doing. And you're helping us all get better at doing that every day. So thank you. Thank you, Shelly Paxton. You're so welcome. Oh, this is amazing. Soul fam, thank you for tuning in. I know, I'm not even going to say, I hope you loved Angela as much as I do because (laughs) I know you love Angela as much as I do after that. Like I got teary a couple of times and I got the goosebumps about 10 times. So (laughs) I'm honored that you spent the time with us. Um, And thanks everyone. We'll see you again next week. Bye. Hey Rebel, thanks for listening. If you were inspired by what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review so our fellow rebel souls can find us. We have big work to do together. And if you want to dive deeper, head on over to my website at soulbatical.com and follow me at soulbatical on Instagram. Until next time, stay bold, brave, and badass, and never stop asking, what am I rebelling for?